Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com. And you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast. Now, on to the show. I couldn't stop reading Blair Fell's debut novel, The Sign for Home, which was long listed for the Center for Fiction's first book prize and selected as both an Indies Introduced 2022 and Indie Next Book by the American Booksellers Association. It was also awarded the prestigious Doris Lipman Prize from the City College of New York. This riveting novel about a young man who cannot hear and can barely see has been called a must-read by BuzzFeed News, riveting by the LA Times, and Publishers Weekly said, this heartfelt romance is hard to resist. Currently working on a second novel about AIDS-era Fire Island, Blair writes and lives in Queens, New York. He began writing fiction later in life, after writing plays and writing for TV, including one award-winning episode of Queer as Folk and California Public Television's award-winning California Connected. His plays include the GLAAD-nominated Naked Will, the cult hit Burning Habits, and the tragic and horrible life of the singing nun, which won several awards. Blair's personal essays have appeared in print and on the web in places like the Huffington Post, Out Magazine, New York Daily News, and Fiction Southeast. Blair has also worked as an ASL interpreter since 1993. He holds a BA from the University of Hawaii and an MFA from the City College of New York. I'm thrilled to welcome Blair Fell to the Make Meaning podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you. And of course, I want to start at the end and work our way back. I absolutely loved The Sign for Home. It, I just absolutely loved it. It introduced me to a fascinating world that I knew nothing about, while also endearing me to characters that were rich with depth. So I want to hear the story of how this book came to be. Oh, wow. I never know where to start this. Okay, so first it was my first novel and I had never written a novel before. I used to be a playwright and a television writer. When I started interpreting, I started writing plays. So this was a long time ago, about 1993. So that's where the interpreting started. I mean, I obviously knew sign language before I mm-hmm. did that. Mm-hmm. And I started writing then. But I wrote plays. I'd never even thought about writing a novel. I actually wanted to have a lover who was a writer. I, uh-huh. I didn't really think of myself as a writer. But anyway, so I, I wrote plays and that then I, I wrote television and a bunch of other stuff, but I never thought about writing a novel. And then uh, around 2013, I think it started, I met this uh, deaf actor who was in a play and it was a deaf play. And I'm like, uh, the first act was really good. The second act was terrible. And like, and I've had deaf characters in plays before, but I've never written like as a central character who is deaf. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, 
I had this idea about a, a deaf-blind character and an interpreter, and I it was just like vague idea, and I started writing a play but like immediately uh the piece said this is not a play and i told the piece that i'm not a novelist (laughs) but it was like well try and the other thing that happened i guess it was right before that is i had a deafblind friend who had me help him with a dating app a dating website he wanted to meet people on this dating website but he couldn't see the interface it was an app and he asked me if i could help him Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took his picture, helped him write his uh, dating profile. But because he couldn't use the app, we arranged this thing where he had this form message we would send to the people that contact on the app where he lied about his blindness. He just said he was deaf. Okay. You know, some people uh-huh. lie about their height, their age. He lied about <laughs> his disability because he sure. thought that would be a little bit too much. So he would just say, hey, um, he just listed himself as deaf on, on his thing. And he said, Hey, um, I'm not on this app very much. Could you contact mm-hmm. me on my phone or my email? Because he uh-huh. could use his accessibility equipment uh-huh. on his phone and his email, but he couldn't use it on these websites, which have all these pop-ups. Yeah. You know, if you are low vision or, or legally blind, you can't really see even where the mailbox is. And okay. so I, I would take his form message, send it to them, you know, go through the guy, uh, guys to see who he was interested in, and then if they were interested, they would message him and then he would be very careful. Like I, uh, you know, gone over him again and again about like being careful on this and he yeah. meets them at a coffee shop. And uh-huh. then like Arlo in the book, if you write with a black magic marker on a, on a pad of paper, yeah. you know, he can, you know, take his magnifying glass out and, and see what you write and, okay. and talks to them there because he had vision when he was young, but you know, like Arlo, he lost his vision a little bit much later than Arlo. But I was just like wondering what he eroticized and like what were his interests in that because I'm I'm a very vain man, to be honest <laughs> with you. I'm a very okay. vain man. So much when I'm looking to date someone is about the sound of their voice and what they look like. And I was just curious about that. So that was one of the inspirations for the book. And then I just started writing and anything that was kind of happening in my life at the time kind of got put into the book. One summer I was working with a woman who was an ex-Jehovah's Witness uh, and she was a lesbian and she got shunned by her kingdom hall and Mm -hmm. her mother shunned her for a while, but her mother actually ended up coming out as a lesbian as well. Wow. It's it's such a cool story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Such a cool story because she fell in love with her, oh, a deaf woman in the Kingdom Hall who was 15 Uh years old. Okay. They were both 15. They fell in love. They got shunned, separated. They were told they couldn't see each other. Mm -hmm. They're like, the hell with you. We love each other. Uh She got shunned by her mother. And then many years later, she stayed with the woman that she had fallen in love with, the young younger uh-huh. woman. Uh-huh. Her mother went to a JW Jehovah's Witness convention in New Jersey, uh-huh. came back with a friend, and and my friend was like, Mom, I think that woman's in love with you. And she's like, No, she's not. She's just and her mother was deaf. No, yeah. she's just my best friend. She's just my best friend. <laughs> and and then she talked to the woman. The woman was in love with her. And she's like, you know something? I'm in love with her too. Wow. So now all four oh. women. Yeah have left the Jehovah's Witnesses and are living in Las Vegas and very happy. Thank I love you very it. much. Love All it. this just, I just started like putting this in the book, interviewed other ex-Jehovah's Witnesses that came from the deaf community, interviewed a ton of deaf blind people, again, about what they 
fell in love with, how they fell in love, who they eroticized. I, a wonderful, wonderful deafblind writer that I want you to know about is a man named John Lee Clark, who was one of my main informants for the book. Awesome. Uh, he's from Minnesota, and he's also one of the, the current leaders in the pro-tactile movement, which is a, a new deafblind language and political movement. And he has a new book of essays coming out in October that is just phenomenal. I just started reading it because it's not out yet, but he sent me a copy and it's so, so good. Yeah. Anyway, I interviewed yeah. these people and and wrote the book. <laughs> it's There's so much there. I mean, you know, it's it just hits home the point of that how writers pull from their real lives to find story and and also the importance of research even if you know the topic or you're creating fiction from from scratch you still have to be believable you have to do that research and so even though you were a translator you know you needed so much to understand people in that world and i love the depths to which you went to get this all of this together how long did this take you it took a really long time i think it mostly took me a long time because i didn't know how to write a novel mm -hmm. so i was really like just shooting you know shooting ducks in a bucket i'm not sure if that's an expression <laughs> but i i really didn't know what i was doing and i just started writing i wrote approximately 800 pages Oh my God. It was actually enough for two books. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I, I started writing, you know, about Arlo's mother. And then that was like 150 pages were like not necessary, got rid of that. But I realized that, oh, I need to know where he came from. So, yeah. you know, you got the young Arlo years and there was enough for a book for just Arlo when he was 13. But the book uh -huh. is mostly about when he's 23. Yeah. And so when I finally decided I need to see if this has any legs... I spent a summer cutting it down to 400 and some pages. Mm -hmm. And then uh, during COVID, I contacted a friend, uh, James Hanahan, who has a wonderful book out now called uh, Didn't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta. It just mm. came out of paperback. Great title. Um, it's a great title. He's a great writer. Uh -huh. And I've known him for really long. I'm like, hey, James, you know, I wrote this novel. Do you know anyone in the profession that can tell me if it's garbage or not? And then I can just move on to something else and I can let this pipe dream go. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, my agent will probably read it if I ask him and he'll be straight with you about it. And I'm like, well, I didn't expect that, but cool. Yeah. I didn't know anything about his agent. And it turns out his agent is like an amazing agent named Doug Stewart at uh, Sterling Lord Literistic, mm -hmm. uh, who he worked on Cloud Atlas, uh, Silver Lining Playbook, uh, American Dirt. Wow. And so, Big time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He took it in a week and a half later because it was COVID and nothing was going on and yeah. called me and said, can you give me a call? And then he gave me some notes, which I worked on for about two months <laughs> and then he sold it. Oh my and God. Yeah. Oh my God. That's like such a dream. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, it's like, oh, surely that will happen again. You know, and it's like, <laughs> we'll see. My second book is out there now trying to be sold. So we'll see what happens. Okay. And what's interesting where you you were talking about, you know, everything that we put into a, a book. Yeah. So like one of the, one of the backstories of, of Cyril in the book is about him having a, a partner who passed away after they broke up. Yeah. And that's actually something that happened in my life. Mm -hmm. And I just decided to like use that for the Cyril backstory that okay. happens before the book starts. After I got a draft of the sign for home. I knew before I wanted to send it out, I wanted to start a second book okay. because I expected to have lots of rejections as uh -huh. most writers yeah. do. Yeah. 
So I wanted to have another book started that I was in love with because I know myself that if I get rejected, it takes me a long time to recover from anything. So I wanted to have something I was in love with started uh, before I sent out the sign for home. And so I started this other book called Disco Witches. And But I'm like, you know, probably neither of these books are going to get published. So I'm going to use the same backstory for the second book, but make it more like in the front of the book. So the second book is about a guy whose lover dumps him and then dies again wow. before the book starts. Wow. Uh, turns out Sign Home got published and now I have a second book <laughs> with the same backstory, but it's an incredibly different book. Like yeah. it's so different. We're actually trying to get it published under a different name. Oh, because okay. Because you know how yeah. Sign for Home has like a, a really loyal fan base. Okay. And the second book is nothing like it's a very different book. So it's being published under the name, if it gets published, please cross your fingers under the <laughs> name RB Fell versus okay. Blair Fell, which is actually okay. my real name too. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, so that, you know, we take from our lives, but we only have yeah. like one life. And right. so, right. Hell? So do you think any of those 800 pages will find their way into like a a second book in the series of the sign for home or is that no. done in the past? I'm on to the you know next thing. That's such a good question. Here's the thing. The publisher really wants another book in the vein uh -huh. of the sign for home. Uh -huh. And I'm someone it's so hard for me. Uh, like, so the second book, as I said, is nothing like, uh, the first book, it's it's told in the third person. It's a, a primarily more of a gay book, mm -hmm. uh, period piece at 1989. There's obviously a magical realism element to it. Mm -hmm. Completely different book. Even my writing group was like, it seems like two different writers. Wow. They love both books, yeah. but it seems like two completely different writers. Yeah. Because I really like coming up with completely new things and new sure. approaches. But a lot of people really want something that is connected to the world of a sign for home. Yeah. That publisher wants something connected. So yeah. I'm kind of brewing something. But, you know, I've done that thing where like, oh, I wrote this beautiful chapter. I want to keep mm -hmm. it and put it somewhere else. It doesn't work that way for me. Everything kind of has to be born organically in the yeah. piece yeah. as yeah. much as I try. Yeah. You know, my my first novel is coming out in September. And yeah, I'm super excited. That's and so exciting. A friend that got an early copy just read it and she texted me. She's like, I couldn't put it down. I want a part two. And I'm like, well, I'm already done with the next novel and working on revisions for it. And it's not the same book. You know, it's a totally different book. So I get it, you know, and there's probably a lot you could do with some of the characters or, you know, take it in a new direction, but you've moved on. You're like into the next project. So, but there is something to be said for having a loyal fan base. So I don't know, but we will keep our eyes peeled for either Blair Fell or RB Fell and we'll see, you know, what comes out. So you've had a really impressive writing career crossing genres and industries. And I wondered what was your earliest memory of writing and how, that led you to, you know, television, theater, and now fiction. It's kind of interesting. I never planned to be a writer. My earliest memory of writing was I was probably about 15 or 16 years old, and I wrote this tortured play about teen runaways, you know, something like that. And this woman named Joy, we won't say her last name because I, I I really hated her for that moment. <laughs> I don't hate her now, but okay. hell, I'll say her name. Joy Obaleski <laughs> read it, and she's like, but she was like really advanced for her age. Like we were 16 and she was mm -hmm. always the one that liked esoteric things. Mm -hmm. And she told me, do you know what the word cliche means? Is what she said to me. <laughs> and I was devastated. And so I'm like, well, clearly I'm not a writer. I, 
Aww. I didn't plan to be a writer anyway, but I was really excited about writing this play. I mm-hmm. always I had wanted to be an actor when I was young. So I was devastated. I'm like, well, I'm clearly not a writer. Oh, shame um, on joy. I'm disappointed. <laughs> stupid joy. But then uh, what happened was, I guess how I started writing, really enjoying writing, but not as a writer, was uh, in college, I started keeping a journal. Mm-hmm. And then I just remember being in this place called uh, the Pink Teacup Cafe in Philadelphia. I was with mm-hmm. my first partner. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting down and there was this handsome guy who had a camera. And I just started writing my journal describing him mm. and, and saying something like, beautiful people shouldn't want to photograph things. I don't know, something <laughs> like that. And um, I just started describing everything that was around me. And it just, it gave me this feeling of just getting that noise out of my head and being in the moment. And it was like, wow, that felt really good. And then mm-hmm. I remember I was... Uh, weeks later, I was bowling or at bowling with my partner and his best friend, and I didn't want to bowl, so I just sat there with my journal. And again, I just described what was happening that turned into metaphors that was like this. I'm like, I'm really enjoying this, but I'm not a writer, but I'm really <laughs> enjoying this. That's yeah. like my first memories of writing. And then it wasn't until I was 29 when this big I, tragic thing happened, and I went to China on a whim. Mm-hmm. And I just had this realization that, you know, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And I would like, I would be that person I wanted to fall in love with who was a writer. And so mm-hmm. I decided to be a writer mm-hmm. and just started calling myself a writer and started writing. Yeah. And living up to it. That's awesome. That's really cool. So I know that you know a lot about the shitty first draft. So <laughs> I, I, as does every author, um, and it's really, it, it makes it makes it easier to know that like, other people feel it too. It's not just my first drafts that are horrible, but how did you work through a shitty first draft to end up with this fantastic novel? Like, how did you take it from there to this? Well, this the whole shitty first draft thing, the thing I say to myself besides the shitty first draft thing <laughs> is this is just a placeholder. Mm-hmm. I'll write the real book later mm-hmm. is, is what I always say. Okay. So it gets me less afraid of putting the stuff on the page. I'm like, don't worry, don't worry. Just write anything. It doesn't matter. This will be the placeholder for the real chapter that you'll write later when you're a good writer. So that's how I start. <laughs> you know, even now, it's just really interesting. Well, I have a, a writing group and I, our friend Anne, who introduced yeah. us, yeah. I got her to start a weekly writing group too. Okay. Um, but my my group has was started 30 years ago by someone else. And okay. when I started this novel is when I joined that writing group. And so we mm-hmm. meet every week. Okay. But anyway, that like gets me to like go to the shitty drafts mm-hmm. and like, okay, I need to polish it up for the writing group this week. Yeah. That's one thing that gets me there. But I can't make it good until I have something down, which we all know. We have to have for something sure. there. Yeah. But the other week, I am a pretty disciplined person because of the writing group, because the MFA I got. I, I I learned to be much more disciplined than I used to be because I have a writing group every week that I yeah. want to bring something to. Yeah. But I I had nothing because I was I, I had done a residency in June and I wrote a lot there, but I didn't really enjoy the residency. Being in a quiet place is not the right thing for me. I found out <laughs> yep. I do not want to live in a Tuscan Hill town. FYI. <laughs> no interest. You're like the only person, again. right? <laughs> oh, F that. I will yeah. never do that again. I mean, it was <laughs> such a gift. They gave me a month to write in this beautiful Tuscan Hill town. And I'm like, when is it going to be over? When is it going to be over? Oh this is gosh, really boring. Yeah. This is yeah. really boring. I need people around me. I need air conditioning. That's the other thing. Yeah. Anyway, so uh-huh. I'm like, I was struggling. I, I looked at this chapter that was terrible. I'm like, 
Writing group is Tuesday night. It's Monday morning. So that means I have two days to get this in shape. Yeah. And I just kind of go in and I'm like, well, I know I want that to be, you know, a flavor in this book. Let's like, well, let's make that happen there. And like, it was weird. And I made it into this great chapter, but it started as a shitty first draft that almost had nothing to do with what happened by the end of the second day. But I had something to bounce off of. You know, it's just like, this is what I'll say. One of the best advice on writing that I ever got, I got before I became a writer, but for some reason it impacted me was either the Duchess or the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland has this sentence and she says something like, make sense of the words and the sounds will take care of themselves. Mm, Love that. It's kind of my mantra is I don't think about making the sentences good. I'm like, make sense of the words for the character in the book. Make sense. Yeah. And if I do that, if I look at the shitty first draft, I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense for that character to say that. Make it make sense to come out of that character's mouth. Okay, mm-hmm. we know in this plot that he's supposed to hate this character. Let's give it a flavor there. It needs to make sense. And that's how I build the chapter into something worthwhile. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, Anne has told me about your writing group and the format, because she and I have been in a writing group together. We meet monthly for years. And um, and it was very exciting to hear, but also sounds like a lot of pressure. You know, it's like every week, although it's a motivator too, you know, it's, it's like a deadline, you know. And and so I know that you rave about this writing group. So tell me a little bit about how this weekly deadline shaped your writing process? Like, do you then set up, you know, in the four days before you're going to meet with them, you're writing every day? Or is it just to have like, you know, 500 words for them? I don't know. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. No, it's not as like strict as that. I'm I I, I really think for myself, I'll speak for myself, not for everyone else. But I looked at what's wrong with me to develop my writing group and or not my writing group, my writing process. At a certain point, again, 2013, when I joined my MFA program, when I, I joined this writing group, I, I looked at my life and I had, I had stopped a few years before that writing for television. I had moved back to New York and several years before that. And I wasn't writing as much because I decided I didn't want to write plays anymore. And I wasn't sure what kind of writer I was going to be, but I knew I am a writer and I wanted to write. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, go to the gym five days a week minimum. And if you don't, Mm -hmm. you beat yourself up about it. You feel Mm -hmm. so guilty. You beat yourself up about it. Why aren't you doing that with writing? Interesting. So this is not necessarily a healthy, a mentally healthy thing to do, (laughs) but it was like, why are I not looking at writing that way? Mean meaning no matter what. Yeah. And you're a terrible person if you don't do it. And <laughs> and so I like kind of adjusted that, but I also know the other thing is I am in a panic if I'm not on time. If you have a party and it's at seven o'clock, I'm one of those awful people there that they're forcing myself to be there a little bit late, meaning 715. I once <laughs> showed up a week early for a date. I am obsessed with being on time. A week early? Wait, I, I don't that even get that. Like, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> but I was so worried. I was actually yes, a week yeah. and an hour early. Oh, that's I funny. actually got there an hour early thinking it was then. Anyway, but I'm <laughs> very deadline, but it needs to be set up. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so join, apply to an MFA. You don't have to join, but apply to an MFA and join a writing group because I knew I need, needed those deadlines. Yeah. And it's my writing group. It's not like we have to present every week. Okay. But I pretty much present every week because also I love an audience. I yeah, come from sure. an acting background. Sure. So I I have people that are going to listen to my work. That's super exciting to me. Yeah. So I just basically, it might just be the two days before because okay. I'm also, 
I'm also, I'm a disciplined procrastinator. Oh, I that love that. If that makes any sense. So I wait two days and I have to present something. So get to work. Yeah. And so it's that I'm like, I looked at what my mental quirks and saw how I could make them make me right. Deadlines and the fear of disappointing people and the fear of disappointing myself. Uh, those are the things that I made me very disciplined. And the writing group is amazing. Yeah. It's, how many these, people? How many six people? Six people are max. Okay. okay. It was founded by this woman named Marion Fontana, who's a okay. New York Times bestseller for a book about being a 9-11 widow she wrote years ago. Wow. Uh, Louise Crawford. Both of them have been in its for 30 years. Okay. And then periodically people will come in. Like when someone leaves, then they'll yeah. open up the process. We read the writing. But the the group in its current form, which is like According to Marion, she might say this to everybody, is like one of her favorite forms of the writing group. Oh. We've all been in about five years now. Okay. And it's great. And they're wonderful writers, super supportive. Yeah. Everyone basically starts, to be honest, everyone starts their crit by saying, I love this. Yeah. It's pretty much like a guarantee. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then we read it out loud, 10 pages mm -hmm. out loud. And okay. you can kind of tell when they don't love it, like yeah. when they start giving <laughs> feedback, but it's just still. To get that kind of thing, yeah, it, that works for me. I love it. I love it. So you have the next novel, Shopping Around. Are you working on the third novel? I am. I'm working on a third novel and kind of a fourth novel. Okay. And, and then thinking about that other novel, which I might just completely switch to, which would be something that is a better follow-up for A Sign for Home because so yeah. many people are asking for another book. Oh, I yeah. wanted to tell you this. Yeah. So because people have been asking so much about mm -hmm. a follow-up for the sign for home, yeah. uh, during my residency in June, I I decided to ask the characters. So I had Cyril and Arlo, they're the two uh, main characters yes. in the book, email each other okay. to ask what was going on. That's so cool. Um, I love that. So I don't want to tell you what's going on, yeah. but it was like kind of neat. I mean, I, I guess I can tell you, but like it seems Arlo, uh, no, I don't want to tell you because it'll give away the book. <laughs> oh. but, Good things are happening for Arlo. Okay, good. <laughs> and good. Cyril was like kind of talking about his anxiety about what was happening with Arlo and mm -hmm. needing maybe to get out there to see him again. And I'm like, oh, they're still alive. The characters yeah. are still alive. They're still Love it. talking to me. Though the new book would probably only have them as peripheral characters. Okay. Kind of focus more on the world of like young interpreters in New York. Okay. Um, and some of the stuff that they're dealing with and other deaf and deafblind characters in the New York. Because I live in New York and I know the New York interpreting community and all of that. So if I write that book, that's what that would probably deal with. I'm still like processing yeah. it, jotting down character descriptions. You know, oh, there's a woman told me this really cute story the other day, a fellow interpreter about how this hearing guy tried to pick her up, but through her deaf client. So he went up to her at a party. She was interpreting at a Christmas party and she's like, I'm, I'm working now. I'm interpreting for let's, I don't know who the guy was, just this deaf guy named Jack. And so the deaf, uh, the hearing guy goes to Jack, like uh, uh, how, how a hearing person should talk to a deaf person is just straight to the deaf person. And the interpreter just is their voice and interprets for him. Okay. And so he goes, Hey, Jack, could you tell your interpreter? I think she's hot. <laughs> and so he starts like hitting on her and having this whole conversation with Jack, the deaf guy, uh -huh. about the interpreter <laughs> trying to hit on her. And okay. I'm like, that's really cool little yeah. tidbit. And so I wrote it down in my notes yep. as maybe something to use. It's also a 
by the way, it's kind of a dick move, but um, yeah, it totally. was just cool. It was, yeah. it was, it was kind of like, oh, that's really, because that's never happened to me as an interpreter. I don't know why, but it's Aww. never happened to me. <laughs> There's still time. You never There's know. There's still time. Right? There's still time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, so yeah, so that's, that's, that's super cool. On with that. That's awesome. So, you know, I could probably talk to you for hours, but I'm not going to take up all your time. But I do want to ask you one last question as we near the end of our conversation, which is what advice would you offer to listeners about building a successful writing career? Well, write first yeah. and foremost, right. And I, <laughs> I think successful writing career might not be the right frame. Okay. And like I had a professor in my MFA. Uh, David Groff, who's this wonderful poet mm-hmm. and wonderful teacher. And mm-hmm. one thing he focuses on is is being part of, you know, the literary culture, the literary community. Sure. And because n- not everyone's going to publish a novel, not everyone's going to publish. I mean, writing, I don't know, writing, I, I think writing is good on its own. Mind you, I am so ecstatic. I published yeah. my first novel. I mean, yeah. it's a, thrilled. Yeah. It was like, it changed my life, but I would still be writing anyway. Okay. And so first and foremost, write. Yeah. Get into a writing group. Number okay. one okay. is get into a writing group. I like the weekly format because okay. of all those weirdnesses about me. Yeah. But get into it and get into a dedicated one. Get it, be around other writers that are dedicated to their craft. And that's it. I mean, go to workshops, network. I mean, my book got published because I knew a writer who I mean, when I met him, he wasn't a successful novelist. He's a Penn Faulkner winning novelist now. He won from this book called Delicious Foods. But wow. I know him like years ago, he would come to my plays because he was dating someone in my play. But meet people, meet other writers because they're the people that are going to eventually help you. And writers are wonderful. I love writers. Yeah, so totally generous. The- yeah, yes. love it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it, interface with other writers, get into a writing group and... If you're really serious about writing, put your writing first. And that's not easy for ev- everyone. Yeah. And I know that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if a, a single mother with kids, it's really hard. And there's yeah. privilege to being able to find time to write. I'm not a wealthy person, but I'm wealthy because I have a career I can make flexible. Yeah. But I had to make those choices and I had to turn stuff down and say, okay, do you know what I'm going to give up? I'm going to give up my nights. I'm going to mm-hmm. work my nights interpreting mm-hmm. and work my afternoons, but I'm not going to work before 1 p.m. because that's when I write. Okay. Yeah. But I had a career I could do that. That's the other thing is to find a B plan Yeah. that allows you to write. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy, but to think about that. And I did think about that when I started writing. That's why when someone said, hey, do you want a screen to be an interpreter? I'm like, interpreting is way better than waiting tables. It ended yeah. up being an incredibly wonderful career too. Yeah. But finding out what you can do that will, and also knowing Knowing when is the best time of day you write Mm -hmm. and cherishing that time and building your life around that so you can do that. And I know there's a lot of privilege to saying that I can do that and not everyone can. And I I get that. But try if you can. I love it. Do you still interpret? You still do I that? do. I, yeah. I'm a writer. I have to. Uh, <laughs> so even though you got the big, you know, sold the book really fast and now your second one's being shopped around, like you're still doing another job, right? You kind of have to. Yeah. You kind of have to. I mean, you got to yeah. get a gimmick. I got to get a gimmick if you're a writer, it, yeah. unless you're unless you're wealthy. And, and mind you, there's a lot of wealthy people out there that are actors and are writers and they don't tell you that part. Yes. Yeah. But if you're like me, who's just a working person, you got to get a gimmick. You have to have this other thing that doesn't, doesn't kill you and doesn't make you miserable. Right. Something else that you also love a bit. Yeah. That also doesn't tax this. Like 
I'll just uh, say this and you can edit it out. But one <laughs> thing when I, I left TV writing and came back to New York mm-hmm. and I said, at first I wasn't going to go back to interpreting, but I'm like, uh, I'll write for the web. But when mm-hmm. I was writing for the web, it made my brain burn out. I couldn't write anything else. Yeah. You can only write so much and it takes all right. the creative energy. I totally get that. And I think this is such an important point because every writer I know either has another job or, you know, has to have another job. Or I know a ton of writers who didn't really start writing books until after they retired from a career. So they're in their 50s, 60s. I even know some in their 70s. And they're like, now they're writing all the time, but they couldn't do that when they were younger. And so there's so many people whose first book comes out after 50. It's like amazing. Yeah. What's actually interesting, yeah, I was much older than 50 when it came out. It was so funny when the guy, the guy who did the, who heads like audiobooks at Simon & Schuster, he's someone I know and he contacted me. He's like, hey, you know, I asked permission from your editor. I want to let you know we want you to do the audiobook. Uh And I'm like, oh, that's, that's great. And he's like, you're just like about 50, right? I'm like, well, no, I'm like, you know, 58. And he's like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty old for having your first book coming out. And I'm like, Thanks Thank a you. lot. Oh my gosh. Thank you very much. But like, look yeah. at the crawdad singing lady. Yeah. I mean, she was like 70. I know. You know, I know. Yeah. Amazing. It just well, needs we're gonna, to be good. It, absolutely. We're going to put in the show notes, all the people you've mentioned. Um, where'd you get your MFA, by the way? So we can put that in too. The City College of New York awesome. is where I got my MFA. Yeah. Actually, yeah. my grandfather, who is long gone, he got his degree from City College of New York, but we're talking like in the 30s, 40s. Wow. Yeah. So before World Langston War II. Hughes was there, Langston Hughes went there. I'm sure it's- they were not friends, but you know, yeah, <laughs> just don't think that was the circle my grandfather was in, but they were at the same place. Yeah. Very cool. So anyway, Blair felt really, really great to meet you. I love your book. I can't wait for the next one and the next and the next. And uh, I hope I get to meet you in person sometime and and really get to shake a hand. So thank you for being on I the Make that. Meeting podcast. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thank you. And good luck on your new book. That's so exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.